0: Good morning, church. Good morning. It is uh, good to be here with you this morning. It's good to worship, uh, to worship through song, uh, a great Lord, uh, uh, with you guys as a church family. Um, if I have not met you yet, my name is Ross. I serve here as family pastor. And uh, today, though he was speaking as if from the dead in that poem, rhyming uh, like, like, like Christmas Eve, um, today is the first Sunday that, that begins Justin's sabbatical. Uh, so, uh, so things are going to look a little bit differently as, a, as a ch- uh, different for us as a church. Uh, Justin will return, uh, return to the to the stage, to the pulpit on, uh, in September. Uh, but for the next few months, uh, we are we're going to have some different faces up here on Sunday mornings. I'll, I'll be preaching, uh, obviously this Sunday, uh, a, a standalone sermon. Then we'll have a next next week. Super excited about uh, we're having Don Stubbs, who's a pastor uh, from from Ohio, who's he's a ministry called Off the Wall Discipleship he's come up here several times excited about him uh, preaching for us next uh, next Sunday then we'll have another pastor uh, also from Ohio uh, although I don't think they know each other. Uh, coming up as well, Bruce Barlow for the rest of for the rest of June. Then we'll then we'll have a, a series in the Book of Zephaniah, the Book of the Bible you barely knew existed, uh, in July, and then and then in August we'll have another another pastor, Clancy Cruz, come up and uh, finish out until the end of Justin's uh, sabbatical. But uh, this this Sunday uh, is uh, is our annual celebration. So we're going to I'm excited about to celebrate with you guys after second service with the, with the cookout. Uh, it's, it's a barbecue cookout. I have like a, this little pet peeve about barbecue, like what we call barbecue, so we, we compromised, I guess, and went with barbecue cookout, but it's really a cookout. Uh, there's not going to be barbecue there. Uh, we're going to be grilling, but it's okay. Um, so, um, <clears throat> so uh, we're, we're excited about our, our annual celebration cookout this, this Sunday, and we're also, this is kind of, we're going to take this Sunday to look at a, a, a passage that, that has weighed heavily on my heart really ever since uh, coming back, back home to Alaska and, 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 and uh, being in fellowship with you guys as, as family pastor, uh, it's, a, it's a passage that, that the Lord has laid on my heart the last few years, and, really, and, and since becoming a father as well uh, four years ago. And so, um, uh, so I'm excited to spend, spend some time with you guys in Psalm 78. Psalm 78, if you have a copy of scripture, you can turn there. <clears throat> and we're going to be, uh, this, this, uh, this Sunday, as we look at Psalm 78, we're going to be, on the one hand, celebrating what, what the psalmist calls the wonderful works of God that he, uh, that he has done uh, in, in each of our lives individually, but also in our lives as a community. But we're also taking this, this Sunday in Psalm 78... Uh, To look forward to the summer, Uh, and uh, we're calling it, uh, thinking about how to have an intentional summer following Jesus and helping others follow Him. Well, so I'm excited uh, to be in Psalm 78 with you guys this morning. So, as I said, if you have a copy of Scripture, go to Psalm uh, go to Psalm 78. It's right in the middle of your Bible. Uh, the words uh, are not going to be up on the screen behind me, as it's kind of a new thing that we've, we've been doing. They're not going to be on the screen behind me, so pull up a copy. You can grab a hard copy in the intro way if you didn't bring one from home or, or on your phone. Uh, uh, but I'd encourage you to have it in front of you as we work through this passage together uh, so that you, know, you can weigh for yourself what the Word of God says. So, uh, with that, uh, let's read it. But before, before, sorry, one more thing before we read uh, Psalm 78. As we read it, this, this psalm was written a thousand years before Jesus, roughly, give or take, a thousand years before Jesus by a guy named Asaph. And in this psalm, Asaph, is calling himself and he calls the entire people of God, the entire nation of Israel, to a task. He's the entire, he's, he calls, he rouses, he summons the entire covenant community, all the people of God that have been bought by him through a covenant. He's rousing himself and his people to action, They are to take a stand to do something. And so as we read these verses, just the first eight verses of Psalm 78, look carefully, try to discern as we read this, discern what is it that Asaph, the psalmist, and that the people of Israel themselves are calling them to do. What are they committing and resolving to do as we read this passage? Alright, Psalm 78, starting in verse 1. Uh, Asaph writes, My people, hear my instruction. Listen to the words from my mouth. I will declare wise sayings. I will speak mysteries from the past. Things we have heard and known that our ancestors have passed down to us. We will not hide them from their children, but will tell a future generation the praiseworthy acts of the Lord, His might, and the wondrous works He has performed. He established a testimony in Jacob and set up a new law in Israel, which He commanded our ancestors to teach their children, so that a future generation, a children yet to be born, might know. They were to rise and tell their children, so that they might put their confidence in God and not forget God's works, but keep His commands. Then they would not not be like their ancestors, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not loyal and whose spirit was not faithful to God. Let me pray for us. Father, uh, we believe in Your Spirit and the power of Your Holy Spirit, so by the power of Your Spirit would You change us. Amen. Alright, so did you guys catch it? Did you guys catch what it is that the people of God are resolving, are committing to do here publicly together as they gather? They are to tell the coming generations of the glorious deeds of the Lord. They are resolving not to keep it a secret. It says, we will not hide it, but they will teach their children. And when this song was first written, a thousand years before Jesus, uh, it had a specific purpose. The, the nation was to come together, and rehearse these words together, reminding themselves of one of the central tasks that they had been given as a people. They were to pass the baton of they were to pass the baton of faith, uh, because uh, it's all about the handover, apparently. Uh, and you can imagine the scene: potentially thousands of people gathered together at the temple, publicly declaring out loud in unison, "We will declare. We will tell the coming generation." Of the glorious deeds of the Lord. Right? On a smaller scale, this, is, this act is like a, when a sports team uh, comes together through going through their pre-game rituals. Uh, they do their warm-up drills or whatever, and then they psych each other up and you know, chest bump, and then they all circle up and they rehearse together a chant. They make a circle, they say their little chant thing, and then they say, Go Stars! or whatever, right? I practiced saying go cards, and uh, I couldn't actually say the words uh, when I was practicing, so I just said go stars because I'm a star. But, um, <clears throat> this, the, and So this psalm is meant to be like uh, that chant. It's meant to have that same kind of rallying, resolve, committing effect. The Holy Spirit inspired this psalm. Here, here's the thing. The Holy Spirit inspired this psalm, I believe, for a very particular, very specific uh, purpose knowing, in his sovereign wisdom, knowing that there would be seasons, there would be reoccurring moments in the life of God's people when they would need to come together, rally together, to recalibrate, to reorient, and to recommit themselves to the task of making disciples and to passing the baton of faith down to the next generation. This is true for the nation of Israel and this is true also for us today, the the church uh, in the new covenant. And I don't know about you, uh, but for me, I know I hit one of these seasons, one of these seasons where I need to come together, recommit, resolve, reorient my life around the task that I've been given. And I hit one of these seasons every year. Summer is just kicking off for us, first Sunday in June. And it goes without saying, but summers in on the peninsula and Alaska in general are a different beast for us, right? But my prayer for myself and for you is that even in the midst of the craziness of summer that we would resolve as a body to commit ourselves to the, ten, to the central task of followers of Jesus, which is helping others follow Jesus too. So maybe for you, things always get a little extra busy with you at, at work in the summertime. You're tied to construction or fishing or tourism in some way. Maybe for you, things slow down during the summertime. Uh, you're, uh, you, uh, for work, you find yourself a little bit more free time. Maybe work doesn't really change for you, but... Uh, you're going to use summer to cram in all the things that you couldn't do in in the winter, the house projects and the hobbies. Maybe you've got trips planned or family coming into town or if you've got kids uh, like school-age kids in the home, your life just changes whether you want it to or not because uh, now you've got kids uh, kids at home or kids not doing school. Uh, And so there's other changes to our normal rhythms. And then here at the church, as we've said, uh, things are going to look a little bit different with Justin on sabbatical. Uh, It won't be the same. And so for all these reasons, this summer you have an important opportunity, I think. And we collectively have an important opportunity. Often with with all the change to our rhythms, the, the increased frenzy, the longer days, there can come with it, I don't know if you've noticed this, there can come with it a certain blasé, unhealthy, stagnant status quo in our spiritual lives. And maybe you've never noticed this before, but I challenge you to, to, to consider right now if this is true of you. As your life fills up and gets busier, what falls through the cracks? Or as you're given more free time and then we inevitably, you know, nature abhors a vacuum, so we inevitably, if we have free time or flexibility in our schedules, we fill those things with other things. What, what, what do we fill in our free time with and then uh, what falls by the wayside as we fill in our, those gaps? Maybe your usual habits of being in the Word or your, or prayer have started to wane. Maybe gathering with the people of God, whether on Sunday mornings or at community group or discipleship triangle, that starts to to fade. Um, now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that like bu- busyness is wrong. Or uh, long days, or weird rhythms, are bad, and we should just do more churchy things together during the summertime. That's not what I'm. That's what I'm, not what I'm saying. In fact, first thing Monica and I did when the snow started to melt, first thing we did was start a kitchen remodel, and that's added a whole level of hecticness and chaos and stress to our lives. Okay, that wasn't there in January, right? I'm simply asking, I, I, and I think this is the, so. The summer craziness is not wrong. It's not bad. It's actually, if your life looked. The same in looks the same in June as it did in January. That's wrong. That's weird, right? Um, so it shouldn't look like that. <clears throat> oh, um, what I'm simply asking, and I, what I think Psalm seventy-eight is, calls us to ask, is where does the task of following Jesus and making disciples fit into our summer plans? What could it look like for you as an individual, for you as a parent, for you as a coworker, for you as an employer or employee? What could it look like for you as a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle or a spouse? What could it look like for you to reject the status quo of summer and to use it instead to point the rising generation to Jesus, even amidst our craziness? So with that, we're going to go back to Psalm 78, and I want us to see three things in this passage. We're going to see the charge to pass the baton, we're going to see some challenges to passing the baton, and then we'll see... Finally, the grace that it takes to pass the baton. So, the charge to pass the baton. Uh, We're going to ask three questions. We're going to say, who's charged to pass the baton? How do we do it? And why do we do it? Okay. In this first, so who? Who exactly is charged to tell the next generation of disciples? All right. When we first read these verses, you may have recognized them. Uh, We read this. uh, We read this psalm, kind of frequently at church, given how many babies we have, every time we do a, a, a child dedication, we read, we read these verses aloud. And in, in these ceremonies, we celebrate, we cheer on parents who are committing to teach and love and discipline their kids toward Jesus. And the language that we like to use here is that parents are called the primary disciple-makers of their kids. That is... That, that is that teaching kids the story of scripture, practicing, and and the practice of following him, that's not a Sunday school teacher's job, that's not Danny's job, that's not my job, that's not uh, our, it's our job as parents. And so verse 5 of Psalm 78 says that our ancestors were commanded to teach their children. And so we take up that mantle as well. So who is to pass the baton? Well, it's parents who are the primary disciple makers of of our kids of the next generation. Yet at the same time, remember, that the scope of this psalm includes way more than just parents. This psalm was not sung at a parents, you know, conference, parenting conference. This psalm was sung with the entire covenant community, the entire people of God, gathered together. Moms, dads, uncles, aunts, empty nesters, singles, widows, married without kids, grandparents, every kind of Israelite. All those who are called to follow Yahweh are called to invest in others, and especially the youth. And that's why... Verse 4 says, we will not hide them, that is the wonderful works of God, from their children. Did you notice that? Like, we are not going to hide it from other people's kids. Like, we're committing to teach other people's kids to to pour into everyone within our sphere of influence, regardless of whether or not they're biologically related to us. So, parents especially, but all of us in this room are tasked with passing the baton to the next generation. Okay, so that's who... Now, how? How are we to pass the baton to the rising generation? How is this supposed to work? How do we do this? Look at verse 2 of Psalm 78. He says, I will declare wise, say- wise sayings or parables, mysteries from the past. The, ES- the ESV says, dark sayings of old. And when I uh, first read that, it sounded like so cryptic or hidden or mysterious, like, like he was about to conjure a spell or something. Uh, but as the psalm goes on, it actually becomes very plain what he means. He's beginning in verse 9, so the section that we're, not, that we're not covering today. Beginning in verse 9, running all the way through the, for the next 61 verses to the end of the psalm, Asaph basically tells two stories with the same theme. So he tells a big, a big story, two big stories. First, he tells about the Israelites' complaining lack of faith in the wilderness. As they wandered for 40, for 40 years, the stu- that's what happens right after the, the book of Exodus that Justin just finished. Uh, last, last week. And then he tells the story of how God rescued them from slavery, defeated Pharaoh with ten plagues, that is the story of Exodus, and then led them to the promised land and made them a thriving kingdom under David. Okay, so he tells these two big stories, takes 50 something verses to, to do this in, and in both of these stories, the point that Asaph wants to drive home, so that's what he means, that's what he means by the dark sayings, the parables, the wise sayings from the old, is to tell stories. He's going to tell stories to, to, his, to the next generation. And the point of both of these stories is that while Israel has been tragically faithless, God has been tremendously faithful. And here's how he summarizes it in our passage. What are we to teach the rising generation? It is the praiseworthy acts of the Lord, the wondrous works He has performed. That is, we as parents and we as followers of Jesus in general are to resolve to continually hold up for others and paint a beautiful picture of the grand story of God's powerful goodness in in spite of his people's sin. So how do we pass the baton? It's by telling stories of the past, by painting pictures of God's powerful goodness to us despite our sin. By telling stories. As one commentator of this passage, uh, he writes, he says, stories are an image of the past held up as a mirror for the present. It's an image of the past held up as mirrors for the present. Stories are a mirror. There is something profound about the power of a story that roots us, that gives us our identity, that places us in something bigger than ourselves. There's something, stories, I mean, think about the stories you heard as a kid. Think about the stories, uh, think, think about the, the, the faces that kids make when they're listening to a story. Uh, or, or how they're following along. It gives our identity. It places us in something bigger than ourselves. It captivates our imagination and stirs us to live in ways that previously we couldn't have even considered. I know one of the powerful stories of my, of my past that has shaped me is the story of my, grand, my grandfather, my grandpa on my mom's side. Uh, my, so my mom's dad. This man, was a, uh, my grandfather, was a violent alcoholic. He was abusive, an abusive womanizer as a young man. He was an absent husband, a distant father, and he had himself had been raised in a similar home. And so he grew up, he was a criminal, he was, got kicked out of the military, he, it was, it was, not, he was not a good guy. Uh, but then, sometime in the 50s, in the 1950s, he came uh, to know the Lord. God showed mercy to a completely undeserving man. And that grace set him on a trajectory of an entirely new life. God gave him freedom from alcohol abuse. He became a pastor. He, so, After recognizing his own worth, he, he devoted himself to a worthy cause. And God gave him a beautiful family. And even when he died, he died maybe 15 years or so ago, he wasn't perfect. He still had a lot of hang-ups. But, but this story of grace in his life is so significant that I don't even want to begin to imagine where my life would be, uh, where my mom's life would be, where my, all my aunts and uncles' lives would be, where my all my cousins' lives would be had not God shown Tremendous grace to an undeserving man. Right? And, and this image from the past is a mirror for the present. This image from the past that, that I heard all growing up is a mirror for the present. As one of his descendants, I am taught to remember that I am nothing without God's grace. Save God's grace, I'm nothing. Uh, and I've come to know that from my own experience, not just inheriting that. Uh, but, but it was that, that was a mirror from the past or, uh, an image from the past that was a mirror for my future so we need stories like that our kids need stories we need stories like that the people that we, uh, the people that we encounter at work the people that we encounter in our, in our neighborhoods like, they need stories we need stories the next generation of disciples needs stories and we need stories from our own past and, and our own family but more importantly we need stories of God the story that begins with a good world created by a good God. But then our fathers, forefathers' sin placed our world under a curse. And now, in all the suffering and anxiety, all the sin and foolishness that we grapple with today, we are living out the consequences for our own rebellion. But God has begun to restore the world we broke through Jesus, who has undeservingly bore all the weight of the curse onto himself in our place by dying for us. But then he rose again, conquering sin and the curse, and signaling that we too will rise again, and that, and signaling also that this world will be remade by him. So now, whatever good we experience in this life—the good food, the good people, the whatever peace, whatever happiness, whatever freedom, whatever joy we taste in this life—they're all pointers to the new world that God will lead us into under Jesus, our King. The people of Jesus are are a people of a story and people who tell stories like the grand story of God's powerful goodness in spite of our sin. So, how does all this about stories relate to the craziness of summer that we're about to enter into? Or maybe you are already in. in. If you and I are going to reject the status quo of summer, the unhealthy stress or the spiritual complacency of summer, then one of the things that we can do is to resolve to make this a summer of storytelling. Now, we don't have to go full-on Garrison Keillor on people, but this summer we can endeavor... That, speaking of stories, like that's something my dad passed on to me, is listening to Garrison Keillor in the, on the radio. But, uh, but this summer, we can en- endeavor to paint a beautiful picture of God's grace for the people that we interact with. So, as parents, like, as we try to make memories for our kids, going on hikes or roasting hot dogs around a campfire, or walking on the beach or doing some project or hobby... like how can we take advantage of those opportunities just to speak to your kids, just to tell stories of God's faithfulness to you, to confess the ways that you've needed His grace this week, to talk about His goodness in creation. I encourage you to to think, like, don't just be reactive with this either. Like, we can be uh, and I'm speaking from a, a you know place of relative inexperience, so just I'm just uh, maybe externally processing with you this morning. But like I encourage you to think like proactively uh, to 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 make plans uh, to think about your summer plans now, the projects that you want to get done around the house, the experiences you want to have with your, your your kids in July. Be thinking about them right now. The hikes, the picnics, the camping, or whatever, whatever you do. As you think about those opportunities coming up, like brainstorm now. Maybe jot thoughts down. Like, what do I want to teach my kids this summer? What stories uh, do I want to do? I want to tell my kids this summer. What sins do I need to confess to my kids this summer and show and, and teach them how God has been 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 faithful to me even despite my unfaithfulness. Like, make notes on your phone. Jot them down. Think about. Okay, this. This lesson would be really cool to teach doing this project, or this thing would be really cool to share while while we're on doing this this thing. Or uh, so 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 think proactively now about, about your summer as a parent. But if you're maybe you're single, maybe you don't have young kids in the home. Who in your sphere of influence that you're going to be? Are you going to be rubbing shoulders with more frequently this summer? Maybe. You know, you, with your work schedule that changes, you're going to be spending more time in the field or more time doing or working on a project with a, a particular coworker. Like, what stories of God's faithfulness in despite your sin could you show? Could you share with with a coworker or with a family member that's coming in, in, in to visit? Like, how can you uh, h- how can you carve out intentionally time to tell stories with the people that you're around? Because uh, stories are are powerful and transformative. Okay, so that's the so who. Who's, who's to pass the baton? Basically everybody. How? By telling stories. And then finally, why? Why, why do we tell stories? Um, why was Israel to tell the future generation the story of God? Look at verse 7. I love this. It says, So that they might put their confidence in God. That is, the story of God builds confidence in the character of God. And that word confidence, in the original Hebrew, it's a, it's a, I love this, it's a, it's a very unique word. In the Bible, it's not always actually a good thing to be confident. There's lots of times when this word confident is translated, and when it's talking about a fool who is confident when he shouldn't be, he's confident in himself, or, uh, arrogant, or, or arrogant people are said to be confident in themselves. So in reality, what this word is telling us now, in this, in this, in this section where we're saying be confident in God, he's, saying, he's, he's telling us that we can have, and that the next generation, our kids can have, a hearty, a defiant, resilient assurance in God, even when it co- it's costly, even when it doesn't make sense to have that kind of assurance. And what else honestly like what else do we want for our kids? What else do we want for the people that we rub shoulders with, for our other brothers and sisters, for ourselves? Like there are a lot of things that we could set our confidence and our hope in. We could set our hope in social media, our image on social media, or our political party or our bank account. But like but what we need today, what our kids need most today is a ridiculous confidence in the creator of the cosmos. Right? What else is going to give our kids like joy that actually satisfies when uh, they get let go from a job, when they're going through a season of their marriage that's the worst season of their lives? What else is going to give our, kid, our kids confidence to, to be able to, to hold on, to, on to, the, to the hard sayings of Jesus, even when it's pressing? Like What else is going to be able to, to solve and, and, and relieve the, the anxieties that you know your kids and that the next generation will face? Uh, because you face them yourselves. Only a ridiculous confidence in God. And so let's resolve now to know and to speak the story of God that builds confidence in the character of God. Like That's what we get to pass on to our kids. Um, Alright, and, and, and those we interact with. So, so that's the charge. Now let's look at a couple challenges uh, of passing the baton, the challenge of passing the baton. Uh, this is way easier said than done, Right? So, uh, uh, look at the very end of our section uh, for today. Psalm 78, verse 8. Let's look at v- verse 8. We are to tell the story of God so that others set their hope in God, not forget His works, keep His commands. And then starting in verse 8, it says, so that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. So, up until this point in the psalm, the, uh, the previous generations have always been painted in a very positive light, right? They've seen God's work, they've uh, received God's commandments, they've passed it down to their children, they're, they're always positive people. But here in this last verse, he kind of throws a curveball, he transitions, he says, not, not every previous generation, not all of our ancestors, not all of our forefathers were commendable. Uh, um, there were broken links in the chain. It, though they had heard God's word, Like, it's, uh, if you follow the logic, like they, everybody's hearing God's commandments. Everybody's receiving. Everybody's hearing about the, the, things, uh, the wondrous works of the Lord. But it was not a guarantee that they lived it out. And here's the thing. Our charge this summer to invest in others, invest in those around us, telling, uh, telling the story of God to, to new disciples, this charge comes with incredible difficulties. Right, so ima- imagine the scene with me, you're, you're watching a relay race at a track meet or on the Olympics or something and, and the first sprinter is finishing up his leg of the race, he's nearing the exchange zone then, and, uh, and if you know anything about relays, which I don't really kind of do, but uh, the, the next runner begins to pick up speed uh, and, uh, and um, he holds his hand behind. Himself, and he, as he's nearing the end of the exchange zone, he grabs the baton. It was a perfect, flawless exchange. Right? There's, there's uh, all that matters is the is the is the handover. Perfect exchange, uh, and then as soon as he leaves the exchange zone, he just starts walking. Right? So the, the the perfect the perfect exchange the perfect handoff was executed flawlessly, and then as soon as he gets into it, begins his leg, he just starts walking and he walks the entire lap around the track and then as soon as he gets into his exchange shown to pass on the next, he starts running again and getting hands off like a per, another perfect exchange. Like, so the handoff matters is meaningless. It's not a, it doesn't matter how perfectly you hand the baton off to the next runner. If you're not gonna run as hard as you can, like what's the point? And in the same way, that's exactly what happened, uh, that's what, exactly what happened apparently with the generation of visuals. They received it well, they handed it off well, but they were stubborn, they were faithless, they were a faithless generation. They didn't run the race well. They, they spoke all the right words, but they didn't run the race well themselves. Uh, um, so uh, um, At the end of the day, by the way they lived their lives, they were stubborn, rebellious, and disloyal. And at the end of the day, this is the story of all of us, right? We are incompetent for one reason or another. Maybe we are running well but we're not speaking well. Maybe we didn't receive it well when we were kids so it's, it makes it even harder for us to pass it on to the next generation. For, uh, at the end of the day we're all incompetent relay runners and bumbling baton passers. Like the, the, I guess apparently the US, uh, the, the U.S. men's 4x1 relay team is notorious for this. Like Every year they, they bungle their, their, their baton passers. So we don't have much positive examples uh, to look at. But... but so, so, what are some ways that we, that we bungle the, the baton passing? Well, you might be thinking, you might be hearing all this about investing in others and making disciples and telling the rising generation. You might be hearing this and thinking, like, I don't even know where to start. I don't know where to begin. I want to follow Jesus, but I've never taken seriously, I've never really thought about what it could look like to help another person follow Jesus too. Maybe you don't feel qualified to teach or equip someone. Maybe you, you've thought, I don't really have a close enough relationship with Jesus myself to, to, to help someone else. Maybe you've thought, well, like we have professional Christians, professional pastors to do this. Like we have spiritually mature elders. What, isn't that their job? That's not really my role. That's not my expertise. Uh, there are a thousand different excuses that we could throw at the wall to kind of justify our lack of investment in others. And if that's you, I want to try to uh, uh, challenge and inspire you this summer. That, like, the New Testament, it doesn't even have a category for a follower of Jesus that's not helping others follow Jesus, too. Like, that, that doesn't exist. You can't find it in the Bible. To be a follower of Jesus, if that's what you call yourself, is to invest in others and to help other people follow Jesus as well. So, it, it, if you've been trying to rationalize, like, well, I can't really invest in others. Like, that's not really my role. or I don't really know. Like, it's kind of the onus is on you, and I say this with like gentle uh, gentle rebuke or gentle like exhortation. Like, the onus is on you to figure out how to do that. To, to, to like, I mean, to, to, to figure out what within yourself, like what it takes to, to pass on uh, the next, uh, to, to pass on, to invest in others. And just a couple of encouragements like, start super small and simple. I can't remember exactly what I said. Uh, if you don't know where to start, start small uh, or simple too. Uh, start small. Like, it could just be like, like one person that you say, hey, like, I want to get to know this coworker a little bit better, or hey, I want to. Like, you don't have to commit to like, I'm going to do family devotions for an hour every single night for the rest of the summer. Like, that's foolish. Don't, don't, don't start there. Start really small. Start with what's one thing, what's one way I can love my kid, or one way that I can, what's one thing that I want my kid to know about Jesus, and how can like, what are two or three stories over the course of the summer that I want to tell them to point my kid to Jesus. What's what's one person, what's one coworker or somebody that I can have over in my home or one coworker that hey, I can help them out with a project that they, that I know they got they've got going on uh, this summer. Just take time to invest in others. And then second, second Peter three, uh, and start small and then start soon. Like don't wait till like oh I'll wait till after the summer, or after it gets crazy. Like start this week. What's one thing that you can do to invest in your in your kids' lives or invest in a coworker's life or a family member's life. And then, second, and then be encouraged by 2 Peter 1.3. It says, everything that we need, everything, everything that we need for life and godliness, like we, have, we have access to through His divine power. So take Him up on that promise. Press in, ask for help, take your growth seriously, look for ways to encourage someone else's growth, sign up to help out somewhere in the church, put yourself out there. And it begins with intentionally and sacrificially teaching and pouring into to others. So, so maybe you don't know where to start. Maybe you're you're tired, or uh, you don't know how to keep going. Uh, you're you're a parent who wants to teach and train your kid. You've, you you, uh, and you're you and you've been investing, but you realize like there's not much return. There's not much reward for this. If you're frustrated, if you're tired, or irritated by your own sin or your own inconsistency, like. You hear Paul's words from Galatians six: Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap, if we do not give up. So maybe you feel unqualified. Maybe you feel tired. Maybe you maybe you're like me and you feel like your sin just keeps getting in the way, right? I, just yesterday, I mean, I'm preparing to preach this this sermon about like investing in the next generation and what happens inevitably. Yesterday morning, we go. I just like okay, I'm gonna take the boys. We're gonna go on a little walk, a little hike at the wildlife refuge of the Visitor Center they got that loop or whatever so we were walking there and t- four-year-old a two-year-old and, uh, and uh, it's supposed to be great father-son kind of time in nature or whatever but then I have but the, I also have so we start that late morning but then I told tell my parents I'm gonna come over we're gonna do lunch with them uh, and so I have this kind of like deadline which it's lunch with the grandparents there's no deadline they don't care <laughs> what time you show up but but still I have in my head like noon we gotta get there at noon because that's when lunch starts it's at noon obviously so so but as we, go on the, as we keep going on this hike, we're out in the middle of the woods now, and I've got a two-year-old and a four-year-old, and there's no way we're going to get back to the car by noon. Like, there's no, they're walking way too slow. They're distracted by everything. Their feet are tired. Every, every part of their body is hurting, apparently. And so, and so we're walking painfully slow through the woods here. And what, what happens? I lose my temper. I, lose, I, uh, I become very impatient with a two-year-old and a four-year-old who were, like, this is supposed to be a fun time when I'm supposed to be, like, teaching them about creation and teaching them about God's goodness and telling them about how wonderful the gospel is and out in the woods together. And I'm raising my voice and losing my temper at a two-year-old and a four-year-old who are trying to keep up with that, right? Like, I wasted it. I wasted the whole moment. Like, so maybe maybe you're unqualified. Maybe you're, uh, maybe you're, uh, maybe you're tired. Maybe you're like me. And you're just a sinner and you can't get anything, do anything right. But, like, either way, like... Um, like God redeems all that. So keep pressing in. Keep pressing in because God redeems all our failures. He redeems all our, our, all, all our mistakes. He, he's, he's good. So, uh, so keep trying. Uh, Alright, so that's the, that's the challenges. Now let's look at the grace as we close. The grace for passing the baton. We will fail. We will drop the baton. We are passive. We get tired. And generation of, after generation of Israelites failed to pass the baton. They were faithless and stubborn like us. But there was one Israelite who perfectly understood the charge he had been given. There was, this one came determined with resilient resolve to speak of the praiseworthy acts of the Lord and the wondrous works He has performed. Jesus came preaching and teaching. With all His might, He invested into others. And so, like, and as He did this, He gives grace to those who are trying to follow His example. So Matthew actually, in his gospel account, Matthew chapter 13, he quotes this psalm, Psalm 78. And he applies it not to Asaph or the Israelites or to you and me. He applies it to Jesus himself. He says this, he says, so this is in the middle of a section in Matthew chapter 13. Jesus has been teaching for a long time. He's been teaching all day, telling all these stories, all these images from the past that he's using as a mirror for the Pharisees and for the crowds that are following him. And then Matthew pauses and he writes this, Jesus told all the crowds all these things in parables and he did not tell them anything without a parable, so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. I will open my mouth in parables. I will declare things kept in secret secret the found, from the foundation of the world. So Jesus here is the ultimate teacher. He's using images from the past, using images from everyday life, as mirrors to help people grow. But unlike every other teacher, he wasn't a hypocrite. He perfectly practiced what he preached. I can't even do that for 24 hours, let alone my whole life. He also didn't let himself become manipulated by apathy or passivity like we so often are. He never shrunk back from investing in others. He never tried to shirk the responsibility that he had been given like we do. He's never said, oh, that's not really for me. Like Somebody else can love them. Somebody else can care for them. Somebody else can speak into their lives. Like, one of the most fascinating, one of the most heart-stirring qualities of Jesus is that he had this uncanny, uncanny ability, as you, as you read his interactions with other people, this uncanny ability to step fully outside of himself as he's talking to a hypocritical, self-righteous, judgmental Pharisee or as he's talking to a broken-down, uh, adulterous woman. He had the uncanny ability to step out of himself and immerse himself in the other person's world to totally empathizing with their perspective and selflessly empathizing with the other person. Uh, he was able to move beyond kind of the surface level advice giving that we often give and he was able to speak to the heart, whether a word of comfort or rebuke or inspiration. Like, and if you, want, if you want to get a taste of this, this Jesus, I really encourage you, Lisa mentioned it earlier, check out the reading plan. We're going through the Gospel of John and even just this week. Uh, reading through the the beginning of the Gospel of John, I was struck by two encounters that Jesus has. One, a conversation with a guy named... with a guy named Nicodemus, a Pharisee, and then another with the Samaritan woman by the well. And in both of those conversations, both of these people are completely different. They both came with severe sin, severe baggage, and Jesus was able to invest in both of them just the way they needed. He was able to create for them an image of the grace and the power of God that penetrated their hearts. I won't give away the details because you should go read those stories uh, for yourselves this, this week. Right? This is the Messiah that we have in Jesus. And he continued to teach, he continued to counsel, he continued to comfort and rebuke and to help others see their place in the grand story of God's rescue, knowing that teaching and investing in others would cost him everything. And then he continued teaching, he continued investing, he continued encouraging until his death, he loved the man dying on the cross next to him, speaking words of truth, speaking words of comfort and grace to the man dying on the cross next to him, right up until his last death. Like, that's what Jesus devoted his whole life and his whole death to, was investing in other people. And so if you're a follower of Jesus today, like, it's because Jesus took the initiative, and he said, you are worth investing in. If if you've heard the the story of the wonderful works of God who raised Jesus from the dead and you've put your confidence and your hope in that gospel, we believe it's because the spirit of Jesus himself has preached to you. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. While you were running from Jesus, Jesus said, I want to make her my follower. While you were defiantly shaking your fist at God like a three-year-old throwing a tantrum, Jesus said, I want him to. To be my disciple. Jesus said you were worth investing in. I want that one to find hope and life and confidence in my gospel. And if this lavish grace has been poured out on you. And made you his disciple. Made you his follower. Like how can we hold back from helping others follow him too? This is the compelling, confident, other-centered life. That the gospel of God's wonderful work in Jesus. That, that's what it sweeps us up into. Has your role as a parent been affected by that grace? Has you Then make it a, a, a relentless habit of passing it on to your kids. Has your relationships at work, your extended family, the folks on your street, have they been permeated by an awareness of God's radical faithfulness to you that overflow in your words to others? Like in Jesus, you have a Savior that's so radically committed to you, He was willing to die to make you His disciple. So by His grace, like let's invest this summer where it counts. Let's reject the status quo of summer and let's pass the baton with intentionality. We can do that by God's grace. So let me pray for us. Father, you are good to us. And teach us to revel in that gospel, to to enjoy uh, the radical, ridiculous faithfulness of God despite our sin. Let us enjoy that. And would from that joy, from that joy of a, of a tender Savior who invested in us, let's invest in others by His grace. We pray this all in Christ's name, Amen.